Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. You're listening to Upfront on KPFA. I'm your host today, Jesse Strauss. As we do most Mondays, we'll spend the next 20 or so minutes on the latest in COVID science in conversation with Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Dr. Swartzberg, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. We'll start the conversation now, but just as a reminder for listeners, we'll be taking calls for questions about COVID science and public health in just a few minutes. I want to start with a study that was released last Tuesday. It builds on previous similar research showing that chances of getting COVID have a direct correlation with blood type, with people who have type A blood at a 20 to 30 percent greater risk of infection than people with type O blood. What do we know about this specifically? And is this a common trait amongst viral infections that some viruses have a kind of preference for certain blood types? Sure. Well, I was particularly interested in that study and in the literature that preceded it because I'm type A. Um, We've seen several reports since um, 2020 with people who have type A being a little more susceptible to getting infected. Now, all the reports haven't shown this. There have been several studies that haven't shown an association. But I'd say the majority of the studies have suggested that people with type A blood are at increased risk of getting infected. Now, let me drill down on that just for a moment. When we say you're at increased risk of getting infected, we're not saying you're at increased risk of getting more seriously ill winding up in the hospital or dying. You're just more likely to get uh, sick from this virus. Now, this is not surprising uh, because we've seen this with many other organisms that infect human beings. For example, cholera has a predilection for certain blood types. Other viruses have a predilection for certain blood types. It's because of these carbohydrate structures on red blood cells and our other cells that uh, some of these viruses and bacteria can use as a way of attacking us. They latch onto these. So it's not surprising to see this. I'm personally a little disappointed. Uh, For the bulk of people, type A is one of the less common blood types, so that's good. Um, But uh, I put this into the category of this is very interesting. Maybe there's an association here, but it's probably not going to change either public health Uh, advice, nor will it change individuals making decisions about how much protection they want to have. I'm Jesse Strauss in conversation with Dr. John Swartzberg from UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and we're opening up, up the phone lines for our listeners to call in with questions about COVID science and how to protect ourselves. The number to call in is one 800 Nine five eight nine zero zero eight. We're happy to take your questions live on air. Again, the number to call in with your questions is one eight hundred nine five eight 
9008. I wanted to ask about a different study that came out on Friday showing that the rate of pediatric diabetes has increased since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. The study found that there was a 14% rise in the rate of pediatric diabetes during the first year of the pandemic. And in the second year of COVID, the rate was up about 27% on pre-pandemic levels. It seems like the research doesn't quite draw like a direct causal line between COVID and pediatric diabetes, but it does suggest that there's a relationship. I want to be careful yes. not to fear. Yeah, I want to be careful not to fear monger here because um, the line is not super clear. But I'm wondering if you've been aware of this study or others of a, a causal, anything causal there between COVID and diabetes, either in kids or anyone else. Right. We've been seeing scattered reports since 2021 of perhaps an association between type 1 diabetes and COVID infection. Uh, this latest report that came out is consistent with those. I'm, I appreciate that you want to frame this correctly because um, it's terribly important to understand that these studies are what we call observational studies. Uh, and they raise this question of an association, but they certainly don't prove it. But there is a body of literature now that is suggesting an association. It's just another argument for why we want to protect ourselves from getting COVID in the first place, particularly children. And we're seeing a disappointing number of children getting vaccinated um, or getting their boosters. So another good argument for that. The, there's another possible explanation, at least for a part of this increase in cases, and that is that during the COVID pandemic, a lot of the reporting of diabetes and other diseases were very slow in coming in. And so we may be seeing some catch-up phenomenon here. Um, but even independent of that, at least this most recent study suggested that there may be an increased risk of type 1 diabetes. It's not common. It's still very rare, but there may be an increased risk. Thanks, John. The number to call in with your questions if you have questions for Dr. John Swartzberg is 1-800-958-9008. John, you talked about the pediatric diabetes story being another good argument for kids to get vaccinated. I wanted to ask about, um, there was a, a Grand Rounds panel of doctors at last week's UCSF meeting that talked about what they might in hindsight do differently in the beginning of the pandemic one of the things that they mostly agreed on was that because schools never became major vectors of viral spread, that potentially the negative impact of learning loss and socialization issues that kept that, that came from kids staying at home was more harmful than it would have been to keep schools open. Now, in addition to that, the conversation doesn't take into account adults who work in schools, teachers, support staff, all those folks. But I'm wondering if you can reflect and chime in on that conversation. The lower transmission rates amongst young people still, to me, feels like a surprise. And I've been worried that even if kids don't have bad COVID experiences themselves, they could be vectors to their families and all that, um, or potentially end up with long COVID symptoms that we just don't know enough about. I'm, I'm wondering if you can reflect on this conversation that the UCSF panel had. Do you agree? agree with any of that? Obviously, learning loss and socialization issues are also a real thing in the context of our COVID experience. 
Right. I think it's to to understand what um, we should have been doing with schools. <clears throat> excuse me. We need to understand that we've really seen different pandemics within this pandemic. By that, I mean in the first year when we knew nothing about this virus and no one had any immunologic protection, that is, they hadn't been vaccinated, they had never seen the virus before, um, it was a very different situation than in the second year when we started to roll out vaccines and as the virus has started to shift. In the third year, um, with with, COVID, with the Omicron, a very different virus in terms of cause, causing less disease, less severe disease. So it's really almost three different pandemics within a pandemic in terms of what we've experienced. So if we look back in the first year when no one had any immunologic protection to this, when uh, the virus was uh, causing an awful lot of morbidity and mortality in all age groups, including children, I don't think anybody would argue that trying to limit transmission in any way we could was very appropriate. Beginning in the second year when the vaccine became available, when we started to see more people immune, we needed to learn more about how this virus transmitted. And what we learned was that children transmitted it very efficiently, um, but so did adults. Uh, what we did learn, particularly later on in the second year and certainly in the third year of this, was that children certainly could represent vectors, but they weren't more likely to represent a vector from being in school than they were from just being in, at home with their family or with other kids outside of school. So schools didn't seem to play as much of a difference. Putting all of this together, I think it's fair to say that looking back, we could have done much better in terms of getting kids back in schools, keeping the environment safe as you really correctly point out for teachers and staff that are working there. Um, we could have done much better. We were using a very blunt instrument where we could have used a much more delicate instrument to parse this. But it's two things left to say about this. Hopefully we'll do it better in the future, but if doing it better, number one, we need to make sure that we do protect our children and everybody else in those schools, get them vaccinated, Number two, we need to really improve the quality of our schools in terms of their safety. What I'm getting at here is making sure that we have a lot of good air exchanges in the rooms where all the kids and the teachers and the janitors and everybody else are. So we need to really upgrade the quality of our schools uh, in terms of protection for not just this virus, but future viruses to come. Well, and then I'm also wondering if you could just add in any reflections on current school policy in regards to masking or, or other things that schools could be doing to improve, whether at this point for, let's say, elementary age kids, whether masking in schools would be significantly helpful. We, we know that at this point, schools basically aren't requiring that. It might be optional for kids. Right. Well, we've seen some outbreaks that have, in schools that have been associated with um, kids not masking. Uh, one was here in Northern California. So that certainly can occur. But again, um, we have a very different population now. Practically everybody has either been vaccinated or has had COVID or a combination of those two. 
and Omicron and its subvariants that's circulating is not as severe as I was mentioning. So we're not dealing with as frightening a virus now as we were before. It's still frightening as we pointed out, as you pointed out, with the type one diabetes, uh, long COVID, but it's nothing like it was in 2000, 2020. Uh, two, excuse me, 2020, 2021. All of that said, I think that the most important things we can do from a uh, from to prevent COVID transmission in schools is to make sure that families don't send their kids to school if they're sick. That's critically important. If the kid has just a cold, keep them home. It'll um, really keep the environment much safer. And the other thing we can do, as I was mentioning before, is structurally improve our schools, that is get adequate number of air exchanges available. Those things are should be adequate to make schools to when they reopen again at the end of August, make them relatively safe environments. We are in conversation with Dr. John Swartzberg about the latest in COVID science. If you have questions for Dr. Swartzberg, give us a call right now. The phone lines are open and the number to call in is 1-800-958-9008. Again, that number to call in with your questions is 1-800-958-9008. I'm going to go to our email. We have a few questions that were emailed in in the past week. Amy from Oakland sent an email asking if there are any updates on the development of a SARS-CoV-2 nasal vaccine. John, do you have updates there? Yeah, there. there's a lot of interest in, and work in this area. This is the idea of squirting some uh, the um, vaccine into the nose or throat, both studies are, are going on ongoing now to give protection where the virus enters our body. Um, that would it's exciting because it would mean preventing getting infected in the first place. And if you never get infected, you of course can't spread the virus. When you get the shot, it still allows you to get infected, but it doesn't allow you. But you're protected against really getting very sick. So if you get infected, you can still spread the virus. So nasal vaccines and or throat vaccines are very exciting. There's a lot of work on this. The bad news is there's nothing that I've seen that suggests that we're going to have anything in the near future. All right. Thank you, John. We have, uh, we'll go to our first caller now. Um, Let's go to Ned from Bolinas. Ned is on the line. You are on air. Good morning. Uh, I just caught the edge of the discussion about uh, type A blood in relation to susceptibility to infection, and I didn't quite get the full picture of that, and forgive me, if you could just go over that detail again, what what the science is and what what your suggestion is. Sure. Type A, people with type A, there have been several studies that have suggested they're more likely to get infected with the virus than people with, for example, type O. Um, There's no evidence that people who have type A are more likely to get really, really sick, wind up hospitalized or dying, but they're more likely to get infected. The virus can enter the body better. Now, these aren't definitive studies. Um, These are studies that suggest an association. So I think all we can say is this is very interesting at this point. We've seen this before with many other bacteria and viruses. uh, And so it's not surprising to see this with COVID. 
And as a reminder for listeners, if you miss part of our segment, if you uh, are... Corona Calls segment airs also as a podcast. You can go to anywhere you stream podcasts and search for KPFA hyphen Corona Calls and listen back to parts that you may have missed. We're going to go now to Marguerite calling from Oakland. Marguerite, you are on the air. Hi, thank you. Um, I uh, um, listened with interest um, to the professors uh, talking about people not sending their children to school sick. And I think that's very important. But school policies now sometimes encourage parents to send their children to school sick. For instance, I have a grandson who went to summer school. Uh, He wouldn't get credit for summer school if he missed two days. And I understand in normal circumstances why that would be important. But I, I think it's wrong now. He met, got very sick and missed one day and then went back to school. But it also encourages very much people going to school, going, kids going to school sick. Also, people don't have sick leave. And they, so let's they make go sure to, to get to our too. question. Do you have a question for Dr. Schwartzberg? Yes. Uh, what do you think the doctor, what do you think citizens can do to change these policies? Actually, Marguerite, you you really raise an important point more generally about the way we lived before COVID may not be in some circumstances the best way to live now that we are still seeing a lot of COVID and we're going to see more pandemics. What kinds of things should we change in terms of the way we interact with each other? One of them is exactly what you were pointing out, and that is uh, we've developed remote learning. So if somebody's sick, hopefully they can they can. uh, uh, attend class remotely. Um, but the the flip side of this is that most of the people, or at least an awful lot of people who got COVID, um, parents had to send their children to school because mom and dad had to work and there was no other place to, to, to put, uh, have their child. So it's not it's very easy to make the statement please send, don't send your children to school if they're sick but there are an awful lot of circumstances where parents really don't have the luxury of choice unless the child is really very very ill. So a lot of policies need to change the one you pointed out Marguerite but we also have a lot of very deep-seated social policies um that really favor people in the higher economic areas and disfavor people who are really struggling to just make a living. We have quite a few callers on the line, so we have to move on. Thank you, Marguerite. We're going to go to Oscar in Porterville. Oscar, you are on the air for Corona Calls with Dr. John Swartzberg. Yes. Uh, our clinic, medical clinic workers, doctors, nurses, are they supposed to get, if they're not 65 years old, are they supposed to get the COVID booster that's in between last falls and this falls to come? Sure. The COVID booster, um, the one that was offered last fall, was really for just to, just about everybody. Uh, the COVID booster that's offered was offered in the spring and in the um, is still available now. Uh, is offered for people at higher risk of, of developing more severe disease, winding up hospitalized and dying, and that's for people that primarily are older, 65 or greater. Some people drop that number down to 50 or greater. 
Um, it's also for people really at most any age who have serious underlying conditions that would make COVID a much more serious disease. So to answer your question, Oscar, um, the booster that's available this spring and right now uh, is really for people at much higher risk of having a bad outcome. The booster in the fall is likely going to be for everyone. For less than 65-year-old people that work in medical clinics? Right. Um, in the fall, the booster is going to be for everyone. Right now, if you're under 65 and in otherwise good health, the booster is, uh, you can get it certainly, uh, but it's not stressed that you really need to. Thank you so much for clarifying that, Dr. Schwartzberg. And thank you for your call, Oscar. We're going to move on to the next caller, Ray from Menlo Park. Ray, you are on the air. Yes, good morning. Uh, I have a friend who lives in the Boston area. He has been told that he has long COVID and that there's nothing that can be done about it. Is that correct? Um, there's nothing specific, Ray, that can be done about it at this point, at least for most of the manifestations of long COVID. That said, there's an awful lot that can be done to help people with long COVID. Um, there are Number one, there are studies that are going on now with a variety of different medications, so the, the, your friend should certainly find out about those. Number two, there's psychological support for that. Number three, there's uh, other medical support in terms of how's your health otherwise, what we, can we do to really boost your health otherwise. So there are things that we can do. It's just not like you can go into a clinic and get a shot and then long COVID goes away. Um, we're unfortunately a long way from that. And this is an opportunity to say we also don't have a lot of facilities to treat people with long COVID. Almost all of the really good places to go for getting care for long COVID or at university medical centers. And there's only around 40 around the country now that are fully operational and the waiting time for these is usually an awful long time. So I would, I, what I would suggest to your friend is make sure that they consult with somebody who knows about long COVID, whether it's their internist or an infectious disease specialist, if they can't get into a long COVID clinic and work with a physician who is understanding and sympathetic and will stick with the patient. A lot of times patients will just say the doctor said there's nothing they can do and, and they're just left out to dry. Thanks so much for your call, Ray. We do need to move on. We're going to try to get to as many folks' questions as possible in the last two minutes of our show. So we're going to move on to Paul in Katadi. Paul from Katadi, you are on the air. Hi, good morning. Um, what good fortune that we have a man with a mind like doctor and who knows how to talk, regular people talk. Uh, I, I'm just um, always appreciative of the work that Dr. John does. Uh, and I want to just say two things. I also was incredibly relieved to hear you talk about the socialization skills of children. And in that same ballpark, does Dr. John know of any uh, studies, uh, mental health studies, about the, the consequences of the pandemic on the development of children? Yes. Um, most of the studies that we've seen have been in school-aged children, um, Paul, and those, there have been a lot, a lot of studies that have shown that COVID really 
profoundly affected the mental health of a lot of children. And it's easy to understand why. They were jerked out of their normal life and thrown into an environment that was scary. Um, they lost a lot of socialization that they would have other, otherwise had, and the list just goes on and on. So yes, clearly the lack of socialization has played a significant role in the mental health of school-aged children. All right. Thank you, Dr. Swartzberg. And thank you, Paul, for your questions. Oh, we're out of time for this week's COVID call-in segment. I know we have more folks on the line. If you have a question we couldn't get to today, please send it to us by email at upfront at kpfa.org. We'll do our best to get back to you during the week and we'll uh, or we'll be able to bring the question to Dr. Swartzberg next week. Um, you can give us a call next Monday at the same time, same place. Thank you jo uh, for joining Dr. Swartzberg. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people and we ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.